You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. OpenSSL patches two vulnerabilities, CISA and election security, Killnet attempted DDoS against the U.S. Treasury, XDR data reveals threat trends, business email compromise, and gift cards. Tim Starks from the Washington Post Cybersecurity 202 has the latest on election security, a visit to the CyberWire's Women in Cybersecurity event, and consequences for Raccoon Stealer from the war in Ukraine. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Fittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. We begin with a brief note that, as promised, OpenSSL has patched two vulnerabilities in its software. Both of the issues had initially been rated critical, but they've since been downgraded a bit to serious. That's no reason for complacency, since after all, serious is still serious. And the patches still merit the prompt attention of users. Check your systems. OpenSSL versions 3.0 and above are vulnerable. Yesterday morning, the Center for Strategic and International Studies held a fireside chat with CISA Director Jen Easterly and CSIS Senior Advisor Suzanne Spaulding. We sat in on the discussion. Easterly discussed how CISA is the sector risk management agency for multiple sectors, including election infrastructure, and notes how it's local and state officials in charge of elections, not the federal government. She said that CISA's role was to ensure that those officials have the tools, resources, capabilities, and information they need to conduct what Director Easterly called safe and secure and resilient elections. She noted the years of cooperative effort among federal, state, and local officials, and she expressed confidence that those efforts were paying off. Her conclusion about next week's midterm elections was clear and unambiguous. She said, There is no information, credible or specific, about efforts to disrupt or compromise that election infrastructure. 
Recent Russian cyber operations, apart from whatever cyber espionage may be in progress, have continued to amount to nuisance-level work with the appearance of hacktivism. Reuters reports that in September, the Killnet gang attempted a DDoS attack against the U.S. Department of the Treasury. That attempt was unsuccessful, Treasury says. The department described the attack as pretty low-level DDoS activity targeting Treasury's critical infrastructure nodes. And the department adds that it was relatively easily parried. That said, shields remain up, as is only prudent. It's certainly possible that offensive cyber operations in the war against Ukraine may quickly become more consequential and show themselves capable of doing more damage than they have so far. Security firm Barracuda has published a report on the severity of threats over the course of 2022, finding that a larger number of serious attacks occurred during the summer while many employees are on vacation. Microsoft 365 account compromises in particular were found to increase during the summer. 40% of attacks between June and September 2022 involve logins to Microsoft 365 accounts from suspicious countries. Barracuda classifies these attacks as high risk. So there was a surge in incidents during the vacation season. Barracuda observes that cyber attackers target companies and IT security teams when they are likely to be under-resourced. This could be on weekends, overnight, or during a holiday season, such as the summer. This is reflected in the XDR data, that is, Extended Detection and Response data, which clearly shows that despite an overall reduction in threat volume, a significantly greater proportion of threats detected during the summer months were at the higher-risk end of the scale. Of course, summer vacation is now way back in the metaphorical rearview mirror, but Barracuda thinks we should expect a similar surge during the upcoming holidays. Business email compromise is a commonplace problem and has been for some time. It traces its origins back to the old hoary Nigerian prince scams, but of course it's continued to advance in cunning and guile since those early days of the advance fee scam. The criminals have shown an ability to gull employees into thinking that they've received emailed instructions from the boss. Often, you'll see BEC scammers impersonating C-suite executives to make wire transfers to vendors, organizations, and accounts that they control. Curiously, one of the forms of payment the scammers ask for is gift cards. That itself should be a tip-off. How often has your boss directed you to purchase a gift card? Yet, gift cards are what they want. Security firm CoFence released a report today in which they detail trends in business email compromise and explain what would happen if you gave scammers traceable gift cards. CoFence researchers purchased $500 worth of trackable gift cards to see where they would go after the cards were given to a scammer. Scammers were found to prefer in-store cards and tended to be flexible with what was available. The experiment showed how quickly scammers move funds— showing that in all but one case, the gift cards were stolen, resold, and used for purchases within a day. So remember, your CFO probably isn't going to email you to ask for gift cards. And finally, what becomes of criminals during wartime? Maybe, like others, they get drafted. And here, we note, we're talking about criminals still at large. Those in the slammer are convicts, and if they happen to be in Russia, well... They'll be offered a chance to join the Wagner Group and serve at the front in exchange for remission of their sentence. 
but regular, still-at-large crooks take their chances like the rest of us. Consider the case of the raccoon-stealer malware-as-a-service operation and one of its impresarios, Mr. Mark Sokolovsky, a native son of the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv. It's known that the U.S. has indicted Mr. Sokolovsky on charges that alleged he was a principal behind Raccoon Stealer and that he was arrested by Dutch police on a U.S. warrant. He's presently in custody in the Netherlands, appealing a Dutch decision to extradite him to America. But what was he doing in the Netherlands? Apparently, bugging out of Ukraine. A story in MarketWatch says that shortly after the Russian invasion— Mr. Sokolovsky climbed into a Porsche Cayenne with his girlfriend to get away from the fighting. The Kharkiv native drove through Poland and Germany, and the police in the Netherlands picked him up on an FBI tip. Raccoon Stealer, formerly a big criminal enterprise, has itself gone into hibernation. MarketWatch quotes their farewell message. Unfortunately, due to the special operation, we will have to close our Raccoon Stealer project, our team members who were responsible for critical components of the product are no longer with us. Thank you for this experience and time for every day. Unfortunately, everything, sooner or later, the end of the world comes to everyone. Now, come on, raccoon stealers. It's not like, oh, I don't know, extradition to the United States is the end of the world, you nutty little trash pandas. Think of it rather as a time of transition, perhaps even an opportunity for growth. And another thing. The Cayenne is a nice ride, but it's still a compact SUV, sort of a mom bomb. If you're paroled, pick up a Dodge Hellcat. You'll be an envy of the dark web. After the break, Tim Starks from the Washington Post's Cybersecurity 202 has the latest on election security and a visit to the CyberWire's Women in Cybersecurity event. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. 
With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With SixSense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose SixSense, visit SixSense.com. The CyberWire recently hosted our annual Women in Cybersecurity Reception at the fabulous Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Several hundred women gathered to celebrate women in cyber and tech, to enjoy a panel discussion from industry experts, and perhaps most importantly, to socialize, network, and create connections. Here's a taste of the event from CyberWire associate producer Liz Irvin. On October 20th, the CyberWire held a Women in Cybersecurity event at the Spy Museum located down in Washington, D.C. Hi, good evening, everyone. This is the most inspiring room to see. This is awesome to see. It was incredible getting to see all the amazing women of cyber in one room together, mingling and discussing their professions with one another. And I had the absolute pleasure to interview just a few of the 300 women in attendance that night. I'm Dr. Diane Janicek. I'm with the National Security Agency. My name is Sarah Sendak. I work at FTI Consulting. I'm a senior director on the cybersecurity and data privacy communications team. I'm Simone Petrella, founder and CEO of CyberVista. I'm Dinah Davis. I'm VP of R&D Operations, and I work at Arctic Wolf. I'm Lauren Sasson. I work at Team Lewis here in Washington, D.C. My name is Lexi Vandenhovel. I work at FTI Cybersecurity, and I do digital forensics and incident response. At the beginning of the event, we had a panel of four different women from four different companies sit down for a discussion. I got to see what some of the guests thought of this year's panel. What I really loved about um, the panel and, and being part of not only you know, getting to listen to the panelists, but put the, having the honor of putting the panel together, was that we really were able to achieve representation across a really diverse set of cybersecurity roles within the panelists themselves. The panelists were awesome. The moderator was great. I, re- I mean, I just loved it. I loved to hear what the young lady had to say. Well, actually, was an NSA intern last summer, and how she said, you don't have to have a role model. You can be your own person. And I just think that's beautiful because the world keeps changing, so you are who you are. Seriously enjoyed it. It was really amazing. And the I was thinking as I was listening to it, the diversity in that panel was amazing. Sitting down with these women, I asked them what it meant to be here at an event supporting women in this field and why it's important for us to make our voices heard in this industry that is typically male-dominated. Here's what they had to say. It is so nice to see such a wide variety of, of cybersecurity jobs and women filling those roles. And then also to be at the Spy Museum where you can see women throughout history who's been, who've been involved in these types of jobs. It's very inspiring. The workforce of the future is in this room today and it's growing year over year. Every year that this event has happened, it has gotten bigger and there are more women that are asking for a seat at the table and deserve a seat at the table. And so I think the industry needs to take notice and they need to really kind of support and think about what they need to do to embrace this untapped talent still. Like, we still have so far to go, but 
this workforce is in this room right now, and it's outside this room too. So we need to figure out how to bring more women in the field, cultivate them, grow them, and we're going to have better businesses and better organizations for it. I feel like for any woman in cybersecurity, there's oftentimes a feeling of being underrepresented in this field. Um, it's often male-dominated to go to any conference, and it's not <laughs> you're not going to see as many females around. Um, but there, there are a lot of females in this field, and it's important to be able to connect with them and help lift each other up and, and help build those bonds um, in this line of work. Lastly, I asked our guests what advice they would give to women looking to get into this field. So there's, you know, so many jobs available, but there's going to be so many more and so many more and so many more because it's always changing and there's so many different aspects. I think one thing that women don't understand or and, and many people in general is that there's probably like 200 types of cybersecurity jobs um, and not all of it is, you know, wearing a hoodie in a basement. In fact, that's actually a very, very small percentage of the cybersecurity jobs out there, right? Don't count yourself out. You know, I grew up thinking that STEM is not for me, math is not for me, technology is not for me. And I found myself just by accident in an intersection of technology and of something that I do think is for me, you know? So I think don't count yourself out just because there are other people in the world who are telling you that you're not deserving of these positions, that you're not capable of these positions, that you're not smart enough. Um, and find your passion that can intersect with technology, with cybersecurity, and pursue that. Google and Twitter are your best friend in the security world. You're constantly learning new things on those blogs. And... Listen to the CyberWire podcast, obviously. <laughs> Females, we have a role for you in cybersecurity. We need you in cybersecurity. You're multidisciplinary, multi-talented. You've got passion. You love teamwork. You love collaboration. So join the cybersecurity field and stay in the cybersecurity field and then recruit your best friends. I want to thank all of the women who came out to support our event and especially those who were able to sit down with me and chat. I'm grateful that I was able to sit down with some of the women in this industry and it was such an inspiration to be able to talk about what it means to be a woman in this field and discuss the event and the panel. This was very enlightening. Thank you so much. Thank and, you, Jen, uh, for putting this all guys. together. <laughs> I, I, I can't even tell you how excited I am. This room is so full and it just it makes my heart. Thanks again to everyone who shared. Special thanks to our audio team, Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, and to producer Liz Irvin for making this segment possible, and to senior producer Jennifer Ibin for organizing the event itself. And it is my pleasure to welcome to the CyberWire Tim Starks. He is the cybersecurity reporter at the Washington Post and also the author of the Cybersecurity 202. Tim, it's great to have you join us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. So uh, before we dig into our topic for the day, can you give our listeners just a little brief rundown of exactly what the mission is of the Cybersecurity 202 there at the Post? I would say that it's it's a newsletter in, in name, uh, 
you know, and you get the things you would expect to get from a newsletter there, which are a rundown of all the big important news of the day. But it's also a little bit like a reported column. Uh, you know, I, once per day, I, I I will dive in from between 600 to 1,000 words uh, on on some uh, subject with a little bit of analysis. So the idea is to give people stuff that they that they want to get from everywhere, and are, and and we can put it all in one place, but also to to give them stuff they can't get anywhere else. I like to to say that uh, if you're going to subscribe to one newsletter, make it the CyberWire. But if you're going to subscribe to two. <laughs> Include the Cybersecurity 202 as well. <laughs> well, let's dig into uh, some some topics here. I know you've been uh, putting a lot of energy into examining what's going on with the upcoming elections. We have. Every time there's an election, certainly there's there are a lot of cyber eyes on, on what's going on there. And th- no difference this time. Um, you know, we've talked about how... This time, maybe things don't look as scary as they have in, in past elections. You know, certainly when you go back to 2016, where there was a hack that essentially you know, changed the election to some degree. It may not have won the election for Trump, but it certainly influenced the election uh, with a hack of the, the Democratic National Committee and, and, and the officials on the Hillary Clinton campaign. And then the hack and leak operation that, that, that was an influence operation, essentially. So those, those twin threats have been around since 2016, and uh, this time, certainly to hear, you know, CISA Director Jen Easterly tell it, there are no specific credible threats that would undermine election infrastructure. We have also, of course, reported on some warnings that the FBI has sent to the the state political parties saying, hey, there's some Chinese hackers, Chinese state government affiliated hackers who are probing your networks. So it's not that there's a lack of threats. It's just that maybe they seem diminished this time. Where where the threats have have maybe shifted in focus, as you as you guys talked about earlier this week, is worries about disinformation. Uh, you know, since the the 2020 outcome uh, of race, we've seen not just foreign influence attempts, but we've seen domestic groups trying to spread disinformation about what happened in that election and what might happen in this upcoming election. We've even seen some collaboration, you know, perhaps on accident, where uh, a foreign government will, will say, say something, and then you'll see the, the people, perhaps unwittingly, amplify it in the United States, uh, people who, where that dovetails with their message. So those are some of the, the big threats we're, we're looking out for. We, we, we do, I think we're comf- comfortably able to say, as we did this morning in, in, our, in our newsletter, that, that things are better than they were in 2016. And of course, you would expect that after nearly a billion dollars worth of investment just from the federal government alone. That doesn't count the state and local investments. Mm. But we also know that there are a lot of things that we're not, we're, we're, we haven't finished doing yet. And that, that, that the state and local election officials will tell you, we need, we need a lot more than a billion. We need, we need five billion next year. That's what they said in December. Yeah, it's interesting to me because, as you say, it seems as though we've got the technical side of things pretty buttoned up in terms of the the actual voting machines and the infrastructure and that sort of thing. My sense is there's a high amount of confidence in that from the folks who would know better. But it's that disinformation side that, that seems, in my mind, to have been ramped up. I mean, when you compare to recent elections, does it does it seem as though that's where the bad actors have been focusing? Yeah, I would say that. You know, it it is it is difficult to really change an election by hacking into the machines. You you know the the kinds of hacks that we've seen demonstrated by and large for the most part are are hacks that have you know you would have to have access to a specific machine. And maybe in a maybe in a district where where 
things are close or in a state where things are close, if you could switch one machine, maybe you could have a big impact on the election. But you have to have access uh, most of the time, and that's hard. You know, there, there's also a push to make it so that any kind of connectivity to the internet that these things have is is going to go away. We've seen very few states uh, still kind of using these modems to, to transmit unofficial results. That's one thing we've seen them do with it. But you don't want the connectivity for the reasons that, you know, there's a potential that if you are connected to the internet that someone can get in. So it's it's difficult. What is easier to do is to lie on the internet. <laughs> now, <laughs> to the credit of of some of the social media companies, and and maybe you know, I don't want to give them too much credit because there are people who will say they have not done enough to crack down on disinformation and influence operations, but they have done some things, and they've done more than they were doing back in 2016. And there seems to be this growing awareness that they need to they need to be on top of this. And a lot of the you know a lot of the networks that that they've found and exposed, uh, and, and not just them, but external organizations they work with, have not had a whole lot of reach. You know, if you look at the engagements, they've been limited in some degrees. But, but you know, my, one of my some of my colleagues recently, just as this, just as recently as this week, were reporting on it on something on Twitter where it actually did get pretty good engagement. So it, it, it's the ease of the operations and the bang for your buck is coming from that. You know, if any, if anything, between those two things. Yeah, I wonder. You know, for for the cybersecurity professionals in our audience, is it on them to help spread the word among their family, friends? You know, we we all have those folks who are skeptical. To just remind them, use their expertise to say, you know what, the at least the technical side of this, we're in pretty good shape here. Certainly, I think that I'd like to give some some real credit to the to the cybersecurity officials who answered our poll uh, that that we ran earlier this week. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. to their economic incentive to to emphasize the hacking threat and de-emphasize the disinformation threat. But they're a pretty honest set of group who would say, you know, even though this my career is in hacking and cybersecurity, what I'm really worried about for this election is the disinformation piece. And, you know, w- one of the things that appealed to me about cybersecurity when I first started writing about it was that it was this unsettled, wild frontier of policymaking where nobody had the answers. And we still don't. We have some answers, but we still don't. We still, by and large, do not have the big answers on this. Disinformation is, is, is perhaps even harder than that. Yes, do you spread the word with your friends? Sure. But, but then there are also people who will tell you that if you're trying to communicate with somebody who is in the embrace of disinformation, if you are too dogmatic with them, you can, you can actually deepen their hostility toward, toward correct information. So you, know, the, you, right. you hear approaches like, you know, ask them questions. Draw them out that way. Mm-hmm. Don't tell them, no, you're wrong, and here's why you're wrong. And show them credible news outlets, but because they don't trust those credible news outlets. Try to get them to talk about right. why they are where they are. And then you've got to, you know, the bigger, bigger, bigger pieces are things like better media literacy training, you know, and, and, and education at the K-12 level. So it's definitely something where the, where the more people who are contributing, the better. But at the same time, you've got to be really careful about how you do it. And we haven't really figured this out yet. All right. Well, Tim Starks is the author of the Cybersecurity 202 at the Washington Post. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, it's great. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. 
And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Maria Vermatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Janine Daly, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Simone Petrella, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.